Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Lee Moeller, and I'm a clinical nurse specialist at Children's Hospital of Orange County. I'm also a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Tia Raymond, a cardiac intensivist from Medical City Children's Hospital, and Dr. Bobby Sutton, a pediatric intensivist from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. They will be speaking with us today about high-quality CPR and hemodynamic targets during resuscitation. Thank you so much, Tia and Bobby, for joining me. Thanks for having us. us. Tia and Bobby, you both are widely published on resuscitation science. What sparked your interest in this area of medicine? So it's interesting. Um, I got pulled into this by, as we all probably know the name, Vinay Nedkarni, who is... uh, one of the real giants in the field of cardiac arrest. Uh, when I was a fellow training here at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, um, you know, he pulled me aside and kind of introduced me to CPR training. Uh, one of my first projects I actually did was training families who were going home uh, from our ICU uh, in like um, family CPR. And we actually used a mannequin, uh, the voice advisory mannequin to kind of talk to the families. It's similar to some of the feedback devices we have. Um, resuscitation in general was just something, you know, when I was a PEDS resident and kind of moving through, it was always something I was just kind of drawn to. And then the idea of like educating people to actually do better resuscitation, to actually save lives was just something that, you know, I was passionate about kind of, uh, from the beginning of my training. Yeah. I mean, for, you know, for me working in the, uh, the cardiac intensive care unit, um, we obviously, I think we have more you know, in hospital cardiac arrest in the pediatric um, ICUs. And so in the beginning of my career, I saw it, you know, as a potential opportunity to improve outcomes um, in that particular population. I think um, unlike non-cardiac patients, I think the cardiac patients have, um, you know, most of the time anyway, particularly the surgical patients have reversible causes for their cardiac arrest. And we can save a lot of them either through, you know, eCPR or just high quality resuscitation. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, focusing on neurologic outcome and post-resuscitation care and um, patient-centric metrics, I think, um, you know, really have improved the outcome for for not only cardiac patients, but non-cardiac patients as well. And so I saw it as an opportunity to improve outcomes in the population that, that I take care of. That was one of my main interests. So our guiding light for pediatric resuscitation is the American Heart Association's HALS algorithm. Tia, can you share how recommendations are developed or changed? Yeah, so um, this past uh, guidelines, it was actually my first opportunity to be a part of the pediatric writing group for the development of the guidelines. And I served as the vice chair for the pediatric writing group with Alexis Topgen as the um, chair. And so I wasn't really too familiar with the whole process. You know, we see this awesome publication that comes out, you know, every five years or so. Um, but I don't think most people realize the amount of work uh, that goes into this, uh, the amount of volunteers that it takes uh, to get through and review um, each of these um outcomes that that we review. And I think it's also important to realize that it's not just the American Heart Association. So, you know, the AHA in producing, you know, our guidelines here in North America works in conjunction with ILCOR or the International Liaison Committee for Resuscitation. And we work together 
to pr um, produce this manuscript. ILCOR has their uh, out outcomes and, and document that they produce, and then the American Heart Association and, and ECC produces uh, their output. Um, one of the interesting things is that this year, the 2020 guidelines, it was for the first time organized in, in these knowledge chunks, um, which was really meant to be uh, a sort of an easier place for uh, the reviewer or the end user to get to the information on specific topics, um, which I really kind of liked. Um, and, and having only done it for the first time, it, it wasn't any different to me because it was how I learned it for the first time. So, um, you know, all of the uh, items that are reviewed have a, a class of recommendation or a strength, and they're also uh, given a level of evidence or the quality uh, of the data that, that is used to review each of the questions. And so um, one of the parts of the 2020 guidelines, it's actually the second part to the guidelines, actually goes through probably more information that you want and then you want to know about how we develop and evaluate these guidelines. So I would refer um, you know, people who really are interested in it to, to read that. But basically, there's three types of reviews. Uh, the first two types of reviews are actually done by ILCOR, and they're systematic reviews. And the second type of review is a scoping review. And um, the purpose of the scoping review is to sort of provide an overview of any available research that, that there is out there on a particular particular topic. And um, the difference between a scoping review and a systematic review is that the scoping review is really sort of much broader um, than a systematic review, whereas a systematic review answers a very narrow, specific question. Um, and then the reviews, the third type of review is called an evidence update. And those were actually the reviews that uh, I and other members of the uh, pediatric writing group performed. And that was done for questions that were not scoping reviews or not systematic reviews by ILCOR. And, um, you know, there were well over 100 uh, different topics that the writing group um, formulated and then uh, publishes and ends up in the in the end product. So it's it's really a long drawn out process and I've sort of cut it down to you know a couple minutes discussion. Um, but uh, obviously there's a lot that goes behind the final um, published output. Bobby, what do you think are some of the barriers to more high quality research and resuscitation? Yeah, so I think there's a few things that are I don't want to call them roadblocks, but they make it a little hard for research in resuscitation. I think one of the things that we kind of come up against, particularly when you're trying to get funding to do this type of research, is really convincing people uh, what Tia has already said, that, you know, resuscitation is a way to actually save lives. Uh, a lot of people look at, you know, once a child needs CPR, like, you know, it's a dismal outcome, and, and that's just not the case in kids. And it's pretty clear now that not only can they get CPR, but high quality CPR can actually save their lives. And so convincing people that this is not just something, you know, that we can't rescue kids from, I think is one thing we come up against with funding agencies. Uh, the second uh, part that is somewhat difficult is, you know, it's not that uh, CPR happens, it's not rare, but it's also doesn't happen on the same kind of scale that it does in the adults. Uh, so where we have 15 to 20,000 events a year, you know, the adults are having, you know, close to 400,000 if you look at in and out of uh, hospital arrest. So 
there's a little bit of that too of looking for a scope of a problem that we need to tackle when you're when you're trying to get you know high quality studies funded um, that we have to go against like the real scope of you know how how many patients are actually going to be affected by the research and then i think one of the uh probably one of the main things that that causes issues with with research this way you know everybody wants to do randomized trials uh, and unfortunately, when you're talking about trying to do randomized trials with cardiac arrest, it, it's hard to predict who, when the cardiac arrest is going to happen to be able to upfront consent a family for any type of interventional trial to save lives with some of the new innovative stuff that's coming out. And so we end up going down the route of having to use um, exception from informed consent for emergency research, which clearly there are protections in. Uh, for children, but both children and adults, such as community consultation and those types of things. But that process in general, to make sure that the that type of emergency research is approved by the community is, is a huge lift. And in fact, uh, on this podcast with me right now is one of the few people that's actually done this successfully uh, for cardiac arrest in kids. And I don't know if Tia has any comments about that and some of the research that she's done using uh, EPIC. Yeah, when uh, I was, gosh, I was a junior attending. I mean, I was a first or second year attending, and um, I was put in charge of one of our picky fellows on his uh, his committee for his research project that he was supposed to get done. And so I took it as an opportunity to make him interested in resuscitation. And so I said, listen here, I want you to look at this. And, you know, he he was interested in it, and he did it. And I'll tell you what, it, it was a lot of work. Um we looked at uh, using vasopressin um, after epinephrine for in-hospital cardiac arrest, and we had to go through the whole exception from informed consent. And it probably took us a year just to get through, you know, all of the, you know, FDA, RIRB, the community consultation, uh, all of it, you know, just to get this study started. Um, and so it, it was a lot of work up front. It could be done, and I think we showed it can be done, but it's a certainly, it's like Bobby said, you know, it, it's a lot to do to try to, you know, get something done that that we know needs improvement, um, you know, so it's just, it's just one of those things, I guess, but it, it can be done. Yeah, I think we're not arguing that um, it, those kind of protections shouldn't be in place. It just is one of the things that definitely makes doing CPR right. research difficult. Mm-hmm. And probably makes others not want to do it. <laughs> so talking about resuscitation, there are so many different things that we can talk about. I wanted to focus a little bit more on rescue performance metrics, patient-centric performance metrics, and epinephrine frequency during CPR. So going into rescue performance metrics, Tia, what do you think are key factors that lead to high-quality CPR? Yeah. So, um, you know, high quality CPR, I think we fir first started talking about like 10 to 15 years ago in the guidelines. Um, and in, in the, you know, recent publication in 2020, there's a section on the components of high quality CPR, and we outline uh, five components. And so the first is adequate chest compression depth. The second is optimal chest compression rate. The third is minimizing interruptions. Uh, in chest compressions or maximizing the chest compression fraction. So the goal would be 80% or greater. The fourth metric for high quality CPR would be allowing full chest recoil between compressions. And then the last 
avoiding um, excessive uh, ventilations. And so it's those five components that really encompass what we call high quality CPR um, during a CPR event. So with all of those different factors, uh, that's a lot happening during an emergency situation and a lot to think about. What do you think are some key things that we can use to measure rescuer performance? And what are the physiological benefits to help people know that it's a good thing to give high quality CPR, use these uh, key factors? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, if you're talking about the um, rescuer metrics, you know, the rate, the depth, the amount of time you're off the chest following the guidelines, I think um, practice makes perfect. So I think um, simulation and mock codes, particularly as Bobby said earlier, these events don't happen every day. They don't happen every week and they probably don't happen every month, right? So you're talking about, you know, something that has to be, you know, perfected when you don't do it very often. And we all know practice makes perfect. So I think simulation and mock codes are, are important. I think the second thing when you're talking about, you know, achieving adequate rate and depth and chest compression fraction, we need help during these events. And so I think, you know, the feedback devices um, that we have now, particularly with the pads that can be placed on the chest uh, that can measure the rate and the depth and tell you, if you're not pushing fast enough or if you're not pushing deep enough or if you've been off the chest for too long, uh, the defibrillator that we have actually has an idle time. And so it reminds everybody, you know, the time just keeps ticking uh, every you know second that you're off the chest. I, I really think the feedback device and putting it in a position, obviously, you know, or with the team practicing so that the person doing compressions can see the device and the rate and the depth. Um, are, are really important. Other things are metronomes. So, you know, some people use metronomes. And I think the the other factor, you know, of recent in the last few years is Betsy Hunt's uh, education and research that she's produced on a quality CPR coach. Um, you know, there are so many things that go into a, a resuscitation and so many people, you know, interacting and trying to work together as a team that even the team leader can't be the person making sure the qual that CPR, you know, is being done correctly because they're in charge of so many other things. And so I think having someone whose job it is to make sure that the compression rate, depth, fraction, et cetera, um, are done correctly with each code, I think that's really important to have that person identified um, during the events. I think an area of interest regarding compressions in our cardiac world is the use of interposed abdominal compressions. Um, I've heard that that's been talked about in our world of cardiac for a while, but uh, Tia, can you touch a little bit more on the idea of intradominal compressions um, and how is that an adjunct to standard CPR? Yeah. So, you know, I want to give props where props are due. And so when I was a junior um, attending, uh, Dan Stromberg, who's, who's now the director of the cardiac ICU at Dell Children's in Austin, was one of my colleagues. And um, he's the one who introduced me uh, way back, you know, this is in the early 2000s on the use of uh, interposed abdominal compression CPR, uh, particularly in our cardiac shunted population. And so what IAC CPR is, is an actual, it's an adjunct 
to standard CPR. So you do standard CPR or chest compressions, but then you also employ abdominal counterpulsation during the diastolic phase of chest compressions. And so you're basically alternating chest, abdomen, chest, abdomen, chest, abdomen in a one-to-one ratio. And what the abdominal compression does during diastole is actually augments return of blood flow to the right heart. It also increases uh, diastolic blood pressure, which Bobby's going to talk about later. And then also uh, increasing diastolic blood pressure is going to improve retrograde flow to the coronary arteries and hence to the brain. So those are the physiologic benefits of IACPR, what does that, you know, correspond to in, uh, you know, patient-centered metrics? Well, it's going to increase diastolic blood pressure. It's going to um, uh, hopefully work in concert with catecholamines via, you know, myocardial oxygen supply. And then it's also going to be, you know, there's no continued afterload on the heart. And what we found, because we, you know, I've been using this for probably about 15 years now, and and the particular patient population and the cardiac population that this is particularly helpful in is those patients who have pulmonary blood flow dependent on a shunt. Okay, so particularly those with BT shunts, particularly those with Norwood following BT shunts. As we all know, it's very, you know, the the single ventricle is pushing blood flow out to the body. It's also responsible for pushing blood flow to the lungs. And if there's no blood flow to the body, you know, no blood flow going to the lungs, then there's no blood flow that's going to come back to the heart. So it's critical in these patients to get blood flow through this, you know, restrictive uh, shunt. And what we found is that using IAC CPR and employing these metrics, what we see is we have improved systolic, diastolic blood pressure, coronary perfusion pressure, improved oxygen delivery, because that's the only way blood flow is getting to the lungs and hence improvement in, uh, in neurologic outcome for these patients. So, um, we're actually right now through the PD Rescue Network uh, doing a multi-center, uh, multinational study looking at using IAC CPR in patients three and under um, to gather uh, quality data. So it's basically blood pressure data, saturation data, NEARS monitoring, end title data that we're going to collect. And then hopefully that data will allow us to move forward, you know, to a larger perhaps uh, trial, uh, not only using this in, in cardiac patients, but non-cardiac patients and then patients over, um, over three years of age. So I, I personally, you know, have seen it for myself uh, and seen the outcomes and the kids who not only survive, but have uh, excellent neurologic outcome, particularly for patients with single ventricle physiology who, you know, it's very difficult to achieve those outcomes. So stay tuned. Hopefully we'll have some real data to convince other people soon. That's exciting. And a new way to do CPR. We're always looking for that and we'll see that in the PALS update, I'm sure in the next 10 years. So moving on to patient-centric performance metrics and looking, focusing more on the physiological response um, based on the interventions that we provide during resuscitation, Bobby, what are some hemodynamic metrics that have been promising and some that have not so much in the world of pediatric resuscitation? 
So I think the easiest one that Tia kind of already mentioned was diastolic blood pressure. Uh, as we all know, particularly if you're in a cardiac unit or even in the pediatric intensive care unit, the, the data from the Get With The Guidelines registry is pretty clear that in kids, a lot of these patients are going to have arterial lines in place at the time of their arrest. Uh, it approaches 50% in some of the publications. And so the, the information is right there on the monitor. It's, it's, it's very easy to, to look at. And in a uh, multi-center study that was actually done by one of my mentors, uh, Bob Berg, uh, with myself and others, we were actually able to associate certain diastolic blood pressures with outcomes in kids. It was 25 in infants, and then anyone over a year of age, it was greater than 30. Um, and so those targets were actually associated both with, with raw survival and survival to discharge with good neuro. Because um, as Tia kind of already mentioned, diastolic blood pressure it, is, it, you know, the, the biggest driver of mean arterial pressure and mean arterial pressure is what drives your brain perfusion. So it makes sense that following diastolic blood pressure would be good, not only for the heart, but, but also for the brain. Uh, coronary perfusion pressure, I think, would probably be what we would like to follow, but it's a little harder because that now you're, you, 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 now you need two catheters. You need one in the artery and, and one kind of in the central venous pressure. But there is data from the adults, uh, and it's old at this point by Norm Paradis and others, that, that shows that coronary perfusion pressure has also been associated with, with ROSC uh, in adults. I think the next obvious one to mention is end CO2. In pediatrics, interestingly enough, that, that has not so far been associated uh, in, in kind of a large fashion with uh, CPR quality. I think it is associated with metrics of CPR quality, like depth and those types of things. But, but looking for a target for us to actually say, like, I want to get my end title to 20, 30, 40, and a study that showed that that was associated with outcomes, that's been a little harder to come by in kids. That being said, it is definitely the next thing that I look at because you get a ton of information from that because for us, particularly in the PEDS unit, I mean, obviously that is a major pulmonary blood flow that, that we do pay attention to. Um, and so it, I'm not saying that it's completely useless. I just, uh, I, when I am looking at things on the monitor, I do put it down kind of second tier from blood pressure. Uh, unless there's some type of physiology that I actually think a really low end title with a decent blood pressure is telling me something about pulmonary blood flow. Just to add, Bobby, you know, I think, you know, particularly, you know, like we already talked about in the shunted single ventricle patients, but then also those who have pulmonary hypertension, as we know, you know, the first uh, vital sign that changes when these patients are going south is absolutely always the end title. Absolutely. And the question is, does, does the bedside nurse <clears throat> or the rest of the team recognize perhaps what's even a subtle change in end tidal going down um, and lack of pulmonary blood flow? And I, I would agree with you that although I don't think we have a number yet for what we need to achieve, I think it's clear during the recitation, the higher I can get the end tidal, the better I think I'm doing CPR. The lower that number is, then I keep asking myself, do I need to push harder? Do I need to push faster? Do I need to push deeper? Are we stopping too frequently? Do we need to give more epi? I mean, you go over the whole uh, you know, cycle of what you're not doing that perhaps you can do better. So I think it's helpful, but I agree that the exact number for kids is sort of nebulous at this point. Totally agree. And I think one of the other problems with Ben though, is the limitations, particularly in the PEDS unit with ARDS and secretions and that kind of stuff. We, we lose it a lot, which is mm -hmm. why I always put it second tier that, you know, there's secretions or something that kind of 
kind of clogs and then we don't have that data anymore. Um, but totally agree with everything that you're saying. Um, and I think, you know, some of the other things that are kind of coming down the pike that we think about it is our, our nearest devices. And, you know, I know they're used a lot in the cardiac unit. I personally think they're a little harder to adjust your CPR quality to. I don't think they respond fast enough based on how you're doing your quality. And I think we still have to stick with the things that are a little more responsive uh, quickly, uh, sensitive to our changes, like the blood pressure and the anti CO2. Uh, but I could definitely see in the future that that is going to be one of the things that kind of makes its way into one of the targets that we follow, uh, even if it's just for kind of getting an idea of what your average nears was during your CPR for prediction of what the outcome may be when you're talking with families. So I do yep. think that is the one of the things that will will end up in the guidelines. Hopefully we'll have some data too on NEARS. Um, we presented an abstract at the 2020 resuscitation conference, uh, EVA, SNG, Beto, um, and, and ROSC and NEARS, and we're working on a manuscript. But hopefully the more patients we can get in, into the PD rescue trial, the more you know, data that we'll have on NEARS. But for me, you know, all of our cardiac patients have NEARS monitors, cerebral and somatic, and, and I kind of lump it in with Entitel. The higher I can get it, the better I feel particularly, you know, the sick nears with, with, you know, good perfusion of the kidneys. Cause usually it's the head or the kidneys that do you in on the, on the cardiac kids. It's usually not the heart, right? The heart we can get back. It's the head and oxygenation and it's the kidneys and, and perfusion. So, um, Again, I don't know if there's a number, but the better you can get the number, I think the better you feel. And I also think, you know, using it for prognostication may be something down the road. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor of this episode, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Established in 1995, the CICU at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is one of the largest critical care units in the country dedicated to the care of children with heart conditions. Their specially trained physicians treat a high volume of rare and complex congenital heart diseases every year, offering a unique level of expertise in this field. The Cardiac Center continues to expand their capacity through premier programs such as the Jill and Mark Fishman Center for Lymphatic Disorders and the Pediatric Heart Valve Center. More information about the Cardiac Center and CICU at CHOP can be found at chop.edu or through links on our website at pcics.org. You can find information about their training programs, as well as their volumes and patient outcomes and specialty programs. Thank you, CHOP, for sponsoring this episode. So there's different ways to me measure rescue performance, as well as different ways to measure the patient's physiological response. So Dr. Sutton, or Bobby, you talked a little bit about how to measure that in real time. And we also use that for our code reviews or event reviews as well. And so we see a little bit of that dynamic of looking at this retrospectively, but also wanting to use it in real time to help guide our provider interventions and as well as see the patient response. Bobby, can you talk a little bit how that dynamic exists in your world? And Tia, can you mention, talk about how that dynamic exists in your world and how can we work together to improve our retrospective review, but also improve our um, review or are taking all that data in, in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. W one of the things uh, I'm actually currently running a trial that is actually doing physiologic debriefing across 18 ICUs in the country. 
Um, and so one of the hardest things about doing these types of debriefings is actually just getting systems in place where you can actually get downloads of the physiology during the event. Um, a lot of us have these recording defibrillators and we can get the defib files and we can show the kind of the, the rescuer centric, you know, performance, but it, it's surprisingly difficult to actually kind of get waveforms and to put those into presentations um, uh, so that you can actually see how your CPR in a debriefing type format was, you know, how the patient was responding. Um, one of the things that we've been doing here at CHOP is we actually make sure we show both. And so we actually make report cards both for, 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 for our institution, we use a Zoll device. We, we, we show the Zoll data, uh, kind of the, the depth, the rate and stuff that comes off the machine. And at the same time, we have engineers that actually time sync up the blood pressure so we can actually see, you know, this, we were doing a depth of let's just say 40 millimeters. And this was the average blood pressure that we were getting during that 30 seconds of CPR. And so we have found it very helpful to actually look at both together. The dynamic that we actually end up in a lot of the time is, and this is why more research needs to be done uh, in this area about what the right targets are for kids. It's very hard to tell a team who had great blood pressures during CPR that their quality wasn't good because it might not have been hitting the rate or depth that's currently recommended. And, and so we struggle with this a lot. And it, it's the way we explain it to people is stick with the patient physiology metrics first. If you are getting a good blood pressure for what you think your patient should have, that's what you should be adjusting your CPR to and you should be targeting. Um, but those monitors sometimes go out. And so what we actually tell people to do, you were doing CPR at let's say a depth of 45 millimeters and a rate of 120, and now your art line just crapped out. Um, remember that what the good targets were that were giving you good physiology. Of course it can change throughout the arrest, but you already had an insight into what that patient needs. Um, and while you're fixing the art line, continue to make sure that you're hitting those targets that that patient liked. Yeah, I think, you know, similarly, um, in the cardiac ICU, you know, the vast majority of these patients are intubated, are sedated, have indwelling central venous lines. A lot of them even might have atrial lines, common atrial lines, or left atrial line to give you measurements. Um, and, and the vast majority have uh, indwelling arterial lines. So, so we're pretty lucky um, that when they arrest, we have all of the patient-centered metrics. Um, now, I will say, you know, we always start with putting the Zoll pads on and, and starting, you know, to achieve a rate of 100 to 120, achieving the adequate depth based on the age of the patient and meeting the feedback metrics on the defibrillator. But immediately we go to the arterial blood pressure and achieving, you know, an arterial blood pressure that is, you know, at least above the, the fifth percentile for age for that patient. Uh, for me, uh, you know, I like to achieve, you know, in our shunted patients, you know, diastolics in the twenties have always made me nervous. And I try to teach the bedside staff that, you know, if you're getting diastolics in the twenties, we better start thinking about why that is. And do we need to make, you know, improvements in volume status or inotropy or whatever. And so for me, that's systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure are what I always go to. And what we found, um, and, and hopefully what, you know, PD rescue and other trials, um, will show, I think what we're seeing is that the depth 
that the AHA is recommending, particularly for infants and, and neonates, is higher or, or bigger, I don't know what the right is, deeper than what is required to achieve a blood pressure that is adequate for that patient. So in essence, AHA guidelines are telling us, you know, push, you know, half of an inch, but really it's, you know, a quarter of an inch to achieve a diastolic blood pressure of 25 or 30. And, um, you know, hopefully we're going to get enough uh, data and waveforms that we can analyze that we can then go back and say, this is the blood pressure we know we need to achieve. What now is the depth to achieve that blood pressure? Because essentially, you know, the, per the patient with the art line has the art line that you can follow. It's the patient who arrests without the art line, who you're then stuck with just having the rate and the depth you know, to try to figure out what's the appropriate quality metric. So, um, you know, I hope that those are things that in the next, you know, few years we're going to start to figure out. And I think, um, you know, these registries and trials are going to affect um, the current guidelines that we have. They're the best thing we have now, but I think that all the new patient-centered data um, that we're going to gather, I think, is going to help guide to whether or not these metrics need to be changed as far as the rescuer metrics. On a personal note, as one who's done infant CPR many times, it will be nice to not have to push that hard if that's really the case, or you can guide it to more of the blood pressure. <laughs> Okay, switching gears a little bit. So we're looking at epinephrine. There's research to support both administration of epinephrine more frequently and also research to support less frequent administration during resuscitation. Bobby, can you touch on the rationale for administration of epi more frequently? And Tia, can you touch on, do the same for administration of epi less frequently? Yeah, so the, the data that's supporting potentially more frequent epinephrine uh, it comes from a variety of sources. So I think if you look at pharmacokinetic data, um, the peak effect of epinephrine is pretty much gone, you know, within 60 to 120 seconds. So for the guidelines to say to wait for three to potentially five minutes, um, it, you're probably in a, in a period there where you have no epinephrine effect on board before you give your next dose. Um, there's also some lab data that, that's come out of our uh, institution, as well as Hopkins, that has shown that more frequent epinephrine administration when blood pressures are low, so not willy-nilly on everybody, but when you actually have low blood pressures, that giving more frequent epinephrine up to, honestly, is every frequent of a minute um, in an animal model can improve outcomes. And this has been shown in asphyxial models, VF models, and sepsis models using LPS. What, what we have to be careful about from what happened, you know, 20 years ago when we tried high-dose epinephrine, so 10 times what we currently give in our bolus doses, that, that was actually harmful. And so there's somewhere in between probably what we give now and 10 times that dose that may be beneficial for select patients. So a lot of this kind of comes back to, you know, what does your patient need? What are the blood pressures? I think what's going to happen and is to not get a manuscript we have under uh, review right now rejected. I think what we're going to, to see is a few doses at a higher interval um, are probably beneficial. And that if you have not achieved ROSC, 
um, and you don't have the heart back, continued frequent administration is just going to expose that patient to the potential downsides of epinephrine, such as cerebral vasoconstriction and stuff that um, can happen with given epinephrine. Um, but I think there is going to be a subset of patients, uh, and, there, and there will be some studies coming out about this, that those that respond to epinephrine, you may be able to shorten their duration of CPR by giving a few doses at a more frequent interval, like around one to two minutes. Um, and then they're obviously going to do better because we all know the CPR duration is associated with outcomes. So if there's a way that we can shorten CPR duration and get that heart restarted uh, with a little bit more epinephrine up front, um, we, we do think it's going to benefit a, a certain subset of patients. But, but it will never be willy-nilly give it for 20 minutes of an arrest. You're, you're just going to be exposing the patient to the downsides of it. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that's exactly why my answer is less epinephrine is better. And that's only because of the patient population that I care for and that arrest under my care. And that's the single ventricle post-op Norwood, right? Who arrests, who, if you don't get back in the first five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, they are not coming back. I don't care how much epinephrine you give them. And even if you get them back, still should go on ECMO because there's a reason that they wound up in that place to start with. So for me, um, you know, way back when we were taught, you know, as cardiac intensivists, keep giving epinephrine every three minutes, what happens is that 60 minute resuscitation, you've now given epinephrine, however many times that is, I can't do math that frequently, but it's a whole heck of a lot. You then put this patient on ECMO and your SVR is out the roof, right? You can't flow. The SVR is too high. Now you're talking about putting the patient on nipride, nicardipine, milrinone. The kid's gone into renal failure. The milrinone is stacked up. You know, it's just the whole shebang starts with all this epinephrine. So from the beginning, um, my thought has always been once you make the decision that you're going on ECMO, stop giving epinephrine and focus on high quality CPR, um, rate, depth, compression, limiting uh, ventilations and, and staying on the chest and defibrillating for any shockable rhythm. Um, the data uh, out of Get With the Guidelines um, for PD uh, epinephrine dosing interval that was actually that I'm a co-author on, but was the lead author was Derek uh, Hoym. What he published was that um, in a retrospective review of, of over 1,500 events, they looked at three different dosing intervals one to five minutes, five to eight minutes, and then eight to 10 minutes. And when they went and looked at adjusted survival to discharge uh, for the five to eight minute and eight to 10 minute compared to the more frequent dosing group, what they found was improved survival to discharge on the, on the account of almost two to three times for those who got epinephrine less frequently. And that was for both patients on inotropic medications, as well as patients who were not on inotropic medications. Um, so I hope, you know, we have a, a study hopefully underway linking ELSO and get with the guidelines that we're trying to get at this a little bit more. Um, and we also, uh, I'm part of a, a multi-center trial that, um, Dr. Ortman out of uh, Omaha is leading, looking at uh, dosing interval for epi and um, eCPR. 
So hopefully we'll have some real data to, to you know, say one way or the other um, about the epinephrine interval. But that's that's what what I do currently. If, if you think you can get the patient back, you know, yes, epinephrine every three to five minutes. I agree with Bobby that there are patients who respond right away. And then there are patients who don't. And if you're not going to, you're probably not going to on the first dose or on the 500th dose. Um, and we haven't talked about vasopressin, but but Bobby and I have talked about it a lot. I do think that there are patients who don't respond to epinephrine who in combination epivaso do have um, an improvement in blood pressure and possibly ROSC. So I still do every once in a while give vasopressin, uh, although it's not recommended currently by the AHA guidelines. Yeah, I'm sure you're very familiar with our in our cardiac world, the one-tenth dose epi or spritzer epi for cardiac patients. Can you talk a little bit more about that and your experience with it and what your thoughts are as that as a potential bridge to ECPR? Yeah, so epi spritzer, all of our patients who are high risk. And so for us, that's, you know, any neonate who goes on pump, it's any single ventricle patient, you know, pulmonary hypertension who's Etc. We have you know standard order sets with for code meds at the bedside, and included in those code meds is is code dose epinephrine and spritzers. That's what we call them in the cardiac ICU. Um, you know, I probably give an epi spritzer every night on call to a patient in the cardiac ICU. Um, you know, I think again, you, you know, code dose epi to a patient who might just be having a little lull you know, and you just needs a little tanking up, a little volume, a little epi to get them, you know, sometimes, you know, frequently the drips aren't getting there. Uh, you think they're getting the epinephrine and, you know, who knows the, the central line, you know, that's in the neck is too short and they're not getting the drips you think they're getting. So you got to move the drips around and to get you back to where you were just an epi spritzer, I think, you know, in these kids, in my mind, it prevents arrest. I don't know if it, um, you know, once you've arrested, I don't think epi spritzers are going to help. But I think for those kids who are sort of, you know, riding the treetops, I think some epi spritzer can can certainly buy you time and can certainly buy you time to get the team in if they're already on high dose, high dose inotropes and you're having to give them spritzers. And then you start to see, you know, less of an increase in blood pressure with each epi spritzer, then you know something bad's about to happen. And I think it allows you the time for the team to get Get there and maybe put that patient on uh, ECMO electively before they arrest. Um, you know, I think it's helpful, but but epi spritzer is the best thing since sliced bread in the cardiac ICU. Yeah, it's no different in the PEDS uh, ICU, except at shop we used to call them, uh, and I almost lost my job over this epi kisses. Um, when one of our fellows uh, was in the trauma bay and asked for the epi kisses. Um, I, I clearly got some feedback on uh, tightening up my language because it was spreading yes. through through our fellowship program. But we actually have them made out of pharmacy. They, they come, yeah. we, we can get them, right. you know, even in the peds unit, sepsis, going on uh, renal replacement therapy, all of those times uh, we're giving uh, epi spritzers. I won't say kisses. Yeah, ours are pre-made syringes by the pharmacy also. And I know, um, you know, in, in the PC4 cardiac arrest prevention study, bedside epi was one of the bundle elements. And a lot of the centers had a lot of trouble 
getting the code doses at the bedside. And I, you know, I don't know, it's, that was just foreign to me. But, um, you know, a lot of us centers who didn't have any problems sort of shared with them how we did it, why we did it, the rationale, how our pharmacy did it, and, and were able to get it. But, um, yeah, it wasn't just, it's not just write it and it comes uh, at all centers. So We've covered a lot of ways to optimize pediatric resuscitation. Tia and Bobby, what do you think are the most important pieces that pediatric cardiac ICUs should focus on to improve our resuscitation efforts? Are there any cows you'd like to put out to pasture in the cardiac world? Um, I don't know if there's any cows, but I think there's a a topic that we haven't even talked about, which um, I think is what's going to get us to the next level of improving outcomes. Because I think we've talked about CPR, we've talked about the metrics, We've talked about eCPR and getting the patient, you know, on ECMO and getting ROSC. The next step is intact neurologic outcome, right? It's survival with good neurologic outcome. And so I think we haven't even said the word post-cardiac arrest care. Um, And I think that is what is the next thing that we have to start focusing on collecting the data on and training our teams on. And I think that there are a couple of things. I think temperature management, blood pressure management, I think hypoxia and hyperoxia and hypocarbia and hypercarbia, I think, and seizures. Um, those to me, I think are, are the next things that we need to focus on as far as post-cardiac arrest care and how we can improve. I think the adults are ahead of us on this. Um, and I think we need to catch up. And I, and I think that that area is how we might be able to get another 5, 10, 15% survival outcome on top of, um, you know, improvements that we've made over the last two decades, but we're kind of stagnated, you know, over the last five to 10 years. We, we really haven't continued to make improvements. And I think that the what might get us over the hump is focusing on these um, neurologic neurologic things that we can do to improve outcome. I don't know, Bobby, what do you think? Totally agree. I mean, I think there's two parts to this, right? Continue to do what we're doing so kids never get CPR. Um, So the stuff that PC4 is doing and that kind of stuff, like let's not actually have the arrests, focus on the prevention. But if it does happen, it's gotta be high quality CPR. And then once you get them back, preserve uh, for, for whatever that means. And I think there will be some interesting stuff that comes out in the next 10 years. With, with non-invasive cerebral blood flow monitors, with, with some drugs for neuroprotection uh, post-arrest. I think a lot of that stuff uh, will be coming coming down the pipe in the next 10 years or so. But but for right now, tomorrow, we should all be focusing on the stuff that Tia said. It's, mm-hmm. it's just like focusing during the arrest, but it should be less chaotic because you're not doing CPR anymore and we should be focusing on it. I wonder if there's an opportunity for post-resuscitation teams that are able to come in and provide that bigger picture and perspective on um, how to optimize all of those things that you talked about, Tia. Yeah, you know, part of the um, PD rescue uh, trial that we actually have a PCAC form um, that we've started to fill out where, where you actually set parameters, you know, for blood pressure, for glucose, for temperature. Um, you know, we had an arrest just last week. And once we got the patient on, on ECMO, everybody disappeared. And it was like the bedside nurse and me. And I'm like, where'd everybody go? You know, we didn't, we haven't talked about what we're going to do now. 
(laughs) Now that we've got the patient on ECMO, you know, we need to make sure all these other things, you know, we're still thinking about. And so, um, you know, we've started having, you know, documented stuff at the bedside with specific um, ranges for the team to know this is my target. And when I'm outside this range, I need to call somebody and ask, you know, what do we need to do? Don't just let the glucose be 500. Don't just let the temperature be 38.5. Let's, you know, let's make some changes if we have to. No, I, I totally agree about, about the, the team question, Lee. We um, just here at CHOP recently, literally within the last few months, has been something we had talked about for a long time. Um, it's definitely labor intensive, but under the direction of Alexis Topshawn, Jess Fowler and others um, and, and Vini, we, we actually have an ACT team now after CPR team. Uh, we, we are notified of all the arrests and, and to get to what Tia said, the adults are ahead of us. They're large centers. The adults are, yep. do, they've been doing this yep. Um, yep. And, and we really need to catch up, but there is a team that comes to the bedside, reviews the pathway orders, reviews the targets, actually uh, sits with the bedside nurse and talks through the management of the blankets and, and all of the things and who to call and what targets to call. So just like we had an ECMO team here that would round with the team every day when a PEDS patient was on ECMO, we now have a post-cardiac arrest team that is rounding every day with the team for children that have had cardiac arrest, whether it's out or in hospital. That's great. And that's really exciting that that is starting to pop up because I agree that that is something to look at when, especially as a bedside, previous bedside nurses, when you're sitting there and everyone leaves the room and you're exactly what Tia said, what, where did everyone go? go? What are we going to be doing? (laughs) Um, Okay. So I have one more question. Last question is given all the time that you've spent studying pediatric resuscitation, what is your biggest aha moment or discovery that has surprised you the most? You know, even knowing these questions ahead of time, I I couldn't really come up with a, I couldn't come up with anything. Bobby, what do you think? Everything is aha. I mean, that's why we love it, right? So, so it's funny. I actually did have one of these. Okay. Um, And, uh, you know, Tia knows this, um, but when I first started doing this type of research, I focused specifically on the rescuer centric metrics. And so it was trying to to find what the right rate was, what the right depth was. And we we knew that we didn't have at the time networks like PD Rescue that were going to give us, you know, a lot of data on this to try to be able to associate with outcomes. So we were really stuck with trying to associate these rescuer centric metrics with blood pressure and the patient physiology. And as I was sitting there doing, you know, one study of about 10 patients trying to match up a certain chest compression depth with a certain physiology, I was sitting there looking and I was like, why am I not just looking at the physiology to start with and seeing what physiology is associated with the outcome? Like, why am I putting in this extra step um, when I knew that about half of my patients had an art line anyways? And so that was that literally that aha moment changed my career and and pushed me over towards more of focusing on more of the patient-centric stuff. Great. Well, I think that's all the questions I have. Is there anything else you guys want to cover? No, you know, the only other thing I think which we didn't talk about, you know, kind of lumps in there with post-cardiac arrest care uh, is the new sixth link in the chain of survival that just got added uh, this past guideline in 2020, and that's recovery. Kind of like how everybody left the bedside after the resuscitation. I think everybody leaves the bedside when the patient 
is discharged home. And the recovery doesn't end when the patient gets discharged from the hospital. Um, and so recovery, not only particularly because we take care of pediatric patients, the recovery of the patient, but also the recovery of this family who might have even been present for, you know, something like cardiac arrest and a resuscitation and a placement on ECMO. So, you know, there's a lot of physical, emotional, mental uh, trauma that goes along with all of this that I think, you know, lots of times we as physicians just, oh, they're alive, we're good, you know, but there's a lot that goes into to the recovery. And, um, you know, I just think that's an area that I'm glad that the American Heart Association is focusing on and bringing these survivors back to talk to us physicians so that we realize, you know, it doesn't end when the patient goes home. It's really kind of the beginning for the patient and their families. I think that's really important to recognize because especially us as in in the intensive care environment, we are keep them alive, right. get them alive and get them to, you know, discharged or transferred mm -hmm. out into the units. Um, and we don't see that after effect or that after post discharge effect very often and, you know, don't really think about that a whole lot. So I really like the idea of being able to reflect on that and being able to put things in place to support our families, even in that initial post arrest timeframe, but beyond discharge yep. as well. Awesome. I, I have nothing to add. That was a, an incredibly important point by Tia. It's probably what we should end with. Um, yep. This recovery is, is one of the most important things and I, I'm gonna be quiet. Thank you again, Tia and Bobby, for speaking with me today about high-quality CPR and hemodynamic targets during resuscitation. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grace, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.